Just a reminder, in terms of announcements, the annual congregational meeting will be held on Sunday, February the 5th, uh, after the uh, morning service. And then the other announcement of significance is that in um, in March, mid-March, March 13th to 15th, as everybody should know by now, we have the uh, Chafer Conference, the registration forms um, on the Dean Bible Ministries website. I think, uh, Barbara, the links to the church on the church website or just DBM? Okay, and you can go there, register, please register, even if you're local, because we need a head count. Registration is not because it costs, because there's no charge for the conference, but just so we can adequately plan, we provide lunch, and we provide uh, snacks, uh, some healthy, lots of cookies. Some people think the cookies are healthy. I'm not one to dispute that. And they're, yeah, oatmeal cookies, they have important things in there. Yeah, some have nuts, nuts are vital. The fiber, oatmeal, chocolate. Chocolate's one of the basic food groups, isn't it? Yeah, so anyway, we will, uh, we have, we have a, a lot of uh, good stuff there. So it's going to be a great, great conference this year. You can read about it on the, on the website dealing with the topic of inerrancy as well as hermeneutics. Because you can affirm that the Bible is the Word of God all day long, but if you do not handle it in a correct manner of interpretation, then you destroy its meaning, and basically, in effect, you're saying you don't believe what God God wrote. So it deals with all, all matter manner of issues. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are rightly prepared to study the word and to worship the Lord Scripture says we're to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. First and foremost, a person needs to be rightly related to God through faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in Jesus as your Savior. And second, we need to be rightly related because we still sin as Christians, and we need to confess sin and be forgiven so that we can be restored to fellowship. First John one nine says that if we confess our sin, God immediately and instantly forgives us, and then in addition to those sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to study your word that, as uh, the psalmist said, it is in your light, that is in your revelation, that we see light, that we see truth, that we understand reality as you created it and not according to what we wish it were or how we fantasized it to be, but that we may bring our thinking into harmony with how you have created things and what you have said the nature of reality is. Father, as we study this psalm tonight, we pray that you might encourage each of us because in many ways we can identify with Uh, David's situation as he wrote this psalm, and that we can see how what he did uh, 
strengthens us, helps us, encourages us as we face similar situations. And we pray that we might be strengthened spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles tonight to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. We have been studying in the book, Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we're in the latter half of 1st Samuel, which introduces us to young David who defeated Goliath, and then God, and before that God had anointed him to be the future king of Israel. And during this time between his anointing and the time that King Saul died, it's a period of maybe 10 to 15 years where David is under a lot of uh, persecution. Saul was paranoid. Uh, he uh, came to hate David and sought his life, tried to kill him. And so it's during that period of time that David is having to protect himself. He's having to make a number of decisions to protect others, as we saw in our study of First Samuel 22 last week. And as he did this, I want to go back tonight to an event that happened in First Samuel 21. I sort of skipped this psalm inadvertently, and we want to go back to it. It takes place actually before Psalm 34, which we already studied. Uh, so this psalm, Psalm 56, was written by David, and it was written to deal with, uh, or written in the context, as the superscription says, in the context of his being a prisoner uh, when he was captured by the Philistines in Gath. Just a, so a reminder, Gath was Goliath's hometown. The Philistines were the enemies of Israel and the enemies of David, specifically because he had killed the hometown hero, and he had decapitated him, which was the norm in combat in those days. And he had captured his armor and his weapons, and when David escaped from Saul, he fled to um, Ahimelech, the high priest, where he was, uh, where he took Goliath's sword from the temple where it had been placed, and he shows up in Gath. And so here's a map to show us uh, the geography of the situation. Uh, David had fled from Gibeah of Saul, which is just north of Jerusalem, and fled to where the a priest lived in Nob, which is located just about two miles northeast of the Temple Mount, a place where the Hebrew University is located today, up on Mount Scopus. And then he fled to the west to Gath. And here's the location of Gath. Now, last time we saw that after this, he's going to head to uh, the Cave of Adullam, which is located about five or six miles uh, maybe more than that, about 10 miles to the east of, of Gath. And, but here we're, we're in, he's still here in Gath. This is the circumstances. Uh, and so some, the correct order in studying these would have been to study, uh, Psalm 34 first as the, uh, excuse me, Psalm 56 first because this is the lament psalm. There are different kinds of psalm. A lament is the technical name for this kind of psalm. It is basically a description of the psalmist who is crying out to God 
in some sort of difficulty. Maybe his life is being threatened. Maybe he's being threatened by various other enemies. He's going through some difficult, uh, horrendous time, and he is crying out to God for strength and for deliverance. And so this is a... Um, uh, lament psalm, and those are the psalms that we often identify with the most, because we go through difficult times in life, and when we read these, we identify with David as he cries out to God to rescue him, to deliver him, to strengthen him, to uh, rescue him from his enemies, and so as we read this, we can easily correlate uh, what he says to our own uh, to our own circumstances. Uh, the background in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15, does not mention anything about David being captured. It mentions that he fled to Gath in order to escape Saul, a move that was uh, that was the result of his prayers to God. We saw a reflection on that in our study of Psalm 34. And when he was there, his cover was blown. And when his cover was blown and he was recognized by uh, the Gittites that he was uh, David who had killed Goliath, he was, uh, according to the superscription of this psalm, he was captured. And so his life was certainly in danger. And the only thing that he could do, or or the strategy he adopted, rather, was to fake insanity. And as we studied, we saw that in the superstitious religions of the ancient world, insanity was often thought of to be uh, something that you were touched by God, and so therefore those who were mentally ill were treated uh, with a special respect and deference, and no one would do anything to harm them because uh, of fear that God would uh, retaliate in some way. And so... David uh, is choosing a very wise course of action in order to escape and avoid the situation. And as we studied in Psalm 34, this was a result of his prayer and his dependence upon God. Now, what we're doing is we're backing up one step to see that, that, that at the time he prayed this prayer of deliverance in Psalm 56. This uh, chapter is 13 verses in length, and it's easily divided between uh, the first seven verses, and uh, then the last uh, six verses. And that gives us the totality of the psalm. The focus of the psalm is really on how David faces his fears. And that's the same thing we saw in his prayer, uh, uh, in his praise, his descriptive praise in Psalm 34, is that he is praising God for delivering him from his fears. And yet when we read that short narrative account in in First Samuel 21, we don't see the historian recording his fear. That's where it's important to go, to go through these psalms as we study because the purpose of the writer of Samuel is to describe uh, Saul's rise and decline because of his disobedience to God's word and God's command and then David's rise and God's blessing of David. But it's not to record all that there was to record. He's not writing a biography of David. And when we look at the Psalms that David wrote that reflect his experience, that tell us about his fears and his cares and his concerns and his anxieties, then we see that 
that uh, David is just like you and I. He had a lot of problems with his own sin nature, just like we do. And we sin, we fall into patterns of worry and fear, anxiety. Uh, We fall into all manner of other sins, as David did. And yet there is forgiveness from God because God is a gracious God. And that is how the psalm will start. When David crying out to God to be merciful or to have grace, show your grace to me. Now, one other thing we ought to note as we look at this psalm is that in the, I believe that the psalms, and I need to do a lot of work on this and who knows when and if I'll ever have the time to do that. Uh, but the psalms as we know them, the 150 psalms that are put together in the, the, uh, Old Testament, uh, were compiled by different writers. David wrote, Moses wrote, uh, there were others, there were the sons of Korah that wrote. And these psalms were written over a period of time. Obviously, Moses', Moses uh, psalm was written when Moses was alive, which is around uh, 1400 to 1440 uh, B.C. David lives almost 400 years later. Solomon was his son, so Solomon is the next generation after David. Others came along after, and there are either, even some psalms that were written after the Babylonian exile when they returned in 538. So they're written in in the late 6th six, century and maybe early 5th century. So they cover a span of time. It is generally believed by by most scholars that the, 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 the canonical form that we have, these 150 and the way they're organized, they're not organized. You might think that they'd be organized chronologically from the oldest to the uh, most recent, or they might be organized according to author. But it seems that there were certain themes that were uh, identified in these psalms, and so they were organized in that way. And so there are many who believe that God's providential hand was part of the organization of the of the Psalter. And I believe there's probably a good argument that can be made there. Uh, I'm not I haven't uh, I'm not an expert on that. I haven't spent enough time reading in that area. But if you look at the organization here, you see that Psalm 53, Psalm 54, Psalm 55, 56, and 57 are all Psalms that are written by David. That two of them, Psalm uh, 50, let's see, Psalm 50, or excuse me, three of them, Psalm 54, Psalm 56, and Psalm 57, were all written and have a historical uh, marker there. Psalm uh, Psalm 54 says to the chief musician, with uh, to the chief musician with stringed instrument, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, "Is David not?" hiding with us. And so that is an indication that um, that they were betraying David. Now, we'll get to that in a couple of more chapters in 1 Samuel. Uh, that is, that's a little later than in Psalm 55. There's no historical marker. We're just told that it was a meditation or contemplation of David. Psalm 56, the psalm we're looking at tonight, says that this was written when David, when the Philistines captured David in Gath. And Psalm 57 comes in, uh, uh, that's the next one, one of the next, about two down that we will come back to. Uh, it's a miktam of David. 
That's a form of a hymn that was written when he fled from Saul and hid in a cave. So three of these all have to do with a specific historical situation when David's life is being threatened and he cries out to God for deliverance. Uh, Beginning of Psalm 54, Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. That is very common in lament psalms and, and where you, you sense the tone of his desperation and his anxiety, his fear, his worry, his desperation is, is evident. He cries out to God as the only one who can help him. In Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my Aetzer. We've studied that word many times. God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. And then uh, Psalm 56 has many of those same things. Starts off, as we'll study, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Psalm 57, Be merciful to me, O God. See, again and again, crying out for God's mercy because we know we don't deserve anything from God. That as rebels born in rebellion against God, not believing in God, not trusting in God, We're all worthy of God's judgment. So we cry out to God to be merciful, which means uh, it is is undeserved kindness. It is the operation of God's grace toward us. And he says in Psalm 57, 1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And so these psalms all focus on a similar theme, which is that God delivers us from danger and God watches over us and the issue is that we trust in him and rely in him so the circumstances here as in Psalm 34 are very similar to what we're studying on Thursday night in 1 Peter and that is that often believers live in a hostile environment and 1 Peter Peter is writing to Jewish Christians at the early part of the church when most everyone in the in Christianity were Jews who trusted in Christ as Savior, and that um, they find themselves in the scattered in the diaspora of Israel, which had started back in 586 B.C. So they're living in a Greco-Roman culture. They're also living in a Jewish culture that is hostile to their belief in Jesus as Messiah. And so just as David is in a hostile environment among uh, enemies in Gath who seek his life, so Christians often find themselves in cultures and in civilizations that are hostile to them. Uh, sometimes this can be the kind of of hostility that we face from friends or families who think that we're uh, crazy because we believe in God or we believe in Jesus or we believe the truth of the scripture. Uh, you find that those who live in the Middle East who are Christians have come under significant persecution and hostility uh, from uh, Islamic forces in the last uh, five or six years, and what uh, what happened in the so-called Arab Spring, which was actually just an uh, absolute breakdown and chaos in the Middle East and took things from bad to worse, because even though the uh, dictators of Egypt and Syria and Libya were not very good people, they did provide a stable environment. They still provided uh, uh, a measure of law enforcement, and there was a measure of stability. But when they kicked Mubarak out of Egypt and when they 
uh, came came along and uh, got rid of the government in in Libya and threatening Assad in Syria, and he's been in a civil war. Absolute chaos broke out, and what happened in Egypt once they removed Mubarak was that the uh, Muslim Brotherhood government that came in afterward uh, intentionally focused on persecuting the Coptic Christians in Egypt, and there were uh, hundreds of thousands that had to flee that persecution and leave everything they had behind. Same kind of thing is happening in Syria. You have the Assyrian Christians who go back uh, many uh, many centuries, they can trace their church all the way back to the apostles. Uh, they operate in the area of northern Iraq and, and uh, eastern Syria, and they have been uh, significantly persecuted, and, and they had to flee for their lives. And, and it goes on and on. And if I describe to you the kinds of persecution that they went through, you would get physically ill. It is horrible what ISIS has done, motivated by the self-righteousness of, of of radical Islam, so people like that are are in a much more extreme situation than we are. But nevertheless, even in America, we see that there are forces at work. There are people who are extremely hostile to biblical Christianity in the academic world, in the political world, and um, they seek to revise laws and they seek to revise things so that uh, they limit the impact of Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. So we all face hostility and, and antagonism to our faith in one form or another, and it may be worse as the years go by. It's certainly become more and more worse with each decade as, as I have lived and as most of you have lived, and I don't see that reversing at any time soon. So there's a lot in this psalm that we can identify with, a psalm written in terms of how to approach God and how to trust in him in the midst of these kinds of circumstances. Now, what I've alluded to here is an important teaching of Scripture, uh, uh, what we call a doctrine, and that is that we live in the devil's world. We live in a world system. The Greek word for that is cosmos with a K, and it often refers to an organized system of thinking. I went over this uh, last Thursday night, uh, that it reflects the uh, Bible teaches that Lucifer fell in eternity past, and his thinking could be summarized in two words, uh, Autonomy wanted to completely declare his independence from God, and antagonism, hatred toward anything that God represented. And all the Bible says that the Bible represents a unified view that is God's view of reality, and that man has developed a multiplicity of philosophies and religions to replace God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, man rejects God and seeks to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so this system is referred to in Scripture as the world system or the cosmic system. And Jesus talked about this in his uh, prayer in John 17. Now remember, this is really the Lord's prayer. This not not... Um, 
O Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is not the Lord's Prayer. That was given to teach the disciples how to pray, and accurately it would be called, if you're going to call it something, disciples' prayer. Uh, Some people call it the Our Father or the Pater Nostra, but it is really a prayer for the disciples. Jesus would never need to pray, "Forgive, forgive me our sins or forgive us our sins, because he never sinned. He prays in John 17, this is the night before he goes to the cross, not long before he's arrested at Gethsemane. He prays to the Father for his disciples and for those who will come to believe in him afterwards. And as part of that prayer, he says to the Father, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world because he is in the world. He is in there. The word cosmos is used to refer to the uh, inhabited uh, inhabited globe or the earth. He said, I, these things I speak in the world because he had entered into human history and, and become a human being, joining humanity with his deity. He said, I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled. He is praying for the disciples and for believers who are living in the world that they can have maximum joy in their spiritual life. So, because that is one of the corollary benefits that we get when we trust in Jesus as Savior and we're given eternal life is God provides us with the potential to have real joy. The word here translated fulfilled in the Greek is a word that is in the, it's a future, or excuse me, it's a perfect middle participle. The perfect means that they may, they might have my joy uh, fulfilled that it's a potential to have it completed, and that's the idea of fulfilled. And the middle voice indicates we don't have something like that in English; we just have an active and a passive. But the middle voice means that they participate in that. So whether or not you fulfill or have your joy fulfilled is dependent upon your decision whether or not you're going to grow spiritually, learn the Word of God, and apply the Word of God. And that's one of those benefits that God has for us. If you want real happiness, no matter how bad the circumstances are, that's what David has. Even though the circumstances are bad, he's going to have joy because he's trusting in the Lord. That's what Jesus is praying for, that we can have his joy fulfilled in us. It's not our joy. It's not manufactured from our emotions. It's not an emotional joy. It's not a giddiness. It's not a high. It is a a mental toughness and stability and tranquility in the midst of difficult situations. And so he's praying to God that his joy would be fulfilled in us and then he says in verse 14, I have given them your word. So the, the connection there it must be noted that the way that we have that joy fulfilled is going to be through the word of God, through the 66 books of the Bible. And so he's, Jesus says, I have given them your word. The world has hated them. Now here it's talking about the world system. The world system has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world. See, as believers, we have a different mindset than the world system. Rather than being uh, arrogant, we have humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusted in Jesus as Savior. Doesn't mean we're any greater than anybody else. It's just that we recognize that, that we needed a Savior. And so we trusted in Jesus as Savior. So the first category of worldly thinking is arrogance. We oppose that by being humble, 
Uh, Scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. So the world has hated us because, first of all, we don't follow them in their arrogance or their hostility toward God. And so they hate us because they hate God, and we are associated with God. So Jesus said the world has hated them. Again, that's a perfect tense verse indicating that's completed action. Uh, The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What he's saying there is he's not otherworldly. He is saying that he doesn't think according to the concepts, the opinions, the values of this world system of thinking goes on, Jesus goes on to pray, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Christianity is not some sort of aesthetic religion where you remove yourself from the day-to-day life that goes on. Christians are embedded in the actions and and all the details of of everyday living. It is not some sort of escapism. So Jesus said, I don't pray that you should remove them from the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That is to protect them from Satan. The term the evil one is a term for Satan and all of those who follow him. It represents not just the one individual, but all those who are followers of Satan. Remember, that includes anyone who follows the cosmic system. Anyone who follows a false philosophy or false religion, remember what Jesus said when he was trying to win over the Pharisees? I'm being facetious. He said, you are of your father the devil. Because they were liars and deceivers, and they had rejected the grace of God and imposed a straitjacket of religion on the Jewish people. So Jesus said you were, they were of their father the devil. Verse 16, Jesus goes on to say of his disciples, they are not of the world just as I am not. Though twice he makes this point that we as Christians are not of this world. That's not our home. And it's not just a physical home. It's talking about that's not the way we think or should think as as Christians. And then what does he pray in verse 17? Sanctify them, that is set them apart What would they be being set apart from in this context? The world. We are set apart. That word sanctify, that's one of those religious words that people read and hear in Christianity, but they don't know anything about. It's from the Greek word, which just means to be set apart to the service of God. So how does that happen? It happens by God's truth. It says, sanctify them by your truth. And, of course, the next verse goes on to say, your word is truth. So in here we have uh, verse 14, I've given them your word. And here it concludes and says, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. So that helps us to understand that the way in which we grow and mature as Christians, the way we are set apart to the service of God, is because we internalize God's word. We study it. We know it. And, and throughout the history of Christianity, the focus, uh, especially in the Protestant, in the Protestant uh, tradition since Martin Luther, has been to study the word of God, understanding that it is the word of God and the word of God alone that has power to transform our lives and to pull us out of the uh, muck and the nastiness of, of the world system so that we can live above our circumstances and not being constantly threatened by our circumstances. Earlier in the previous chapter of John, 
just before Jesus prayed, Jesus told his disciples these things, that is all that he taught them that night. He said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. That's the offer that we can have peace even in the midst of turmoil. He's getting ready to be executed the next day by the Romans, and he's saying you can have peace. You can have stability. That doesn't mean the outside circumstances are going to change, but your internal mental attitude has to change and organize itself according to God's word. When you align your thinking with God's thinking, then you can live above those circumstances and have stability and peace, calm, tranquility, happiness, no matter what. The whole world's falling apart around you, and you can just be relaxed, calm. So Jesus said, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Notice the contrast. When we live in the world, we'll have tribulation. David is facing that a thousand years earlier as he is surrounded by the enemy, the Philistines, and they want his life because he has killed their uh, their hero. We, as 21st century Christians living in a world that has uh, so many changes going on, we can't uh, we can't keep track. And many of these changes mean that we that that decisions are made in the judiciary and other places that limit the First Amendment rights. People say no, they don't, but yes, they do. And they limit our First Amendment rights, not just as Christians, but as Americans. Many of these things have happened in the name of some justice or some righteousness or some other program, but that's another story. Romans 12.2 says, or Jesus goes on to say, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus set a pattern for us that just as he overcame the world, we can overcome the world and are expected to in spiritual growth. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, young men, you have overcome the world. So the young men there refers to adolescent believers that they have been able to, by studying the word of God and applying these principles in their life, they can overcome, overcome the world. Paul writes it this way in Romans 12 too. He offers a, a command, do not be conformed to this world, a prohibition. Don't be conformed. Don't be forced into the world's mold. Don't think according to the human viewpoint, culture of the civilization around you, but think like God wants you to think. God wants us to take the high road, and he defines the high road. As believers, we are to learn how to act and react without taking the low road. If you just watched all the circus of American politics in the last year, you've got a lot of negative examples on how to take the low road. We have a new president in two days. He needs to have Twitter taken away from him because he tends to always take the low road when he gets on his Twitter account. Christians should take the high road. We should always be more gracious than necessary, more kind than necessary, more generous than necessary, because we are representing the graciousness, the kindness, and the generosity of Jesus who saved us. That's the focal point. So we're not going to be pressed into the, uh, into the mold of the world. We're going to learn more about that on 
uh, Thursday night with Peter when he ta- he's talking about don't revile and don't return evil for evil, but instead give a blessing. Uh, re- reviling is natural. That's the sin nature. We want to react. We want to return evil for evil. We want to retaliate. But instead, Scripture says that's not what Jesus did. And we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. We have to follow that grace-oriented pattern. So Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It comes back to thinking. We're not controlled by our emotions, our emotional reactions, our gut feelings. We're controlled by thinking, which is informed by the truth of God's word. That takes us right back to what Jesus prayed. Sanctify them by truth which is a set body of knowledge that comes from God's revelation of himself. That's why Jesus went on to say, Thy word is truth. So be transformed by the renewing, by the overhaul of your thinking, that you may prove. That's the practical value of Christianity on a day-by-day basis. We can have joy, we can have peace, we can have stability day in and day out. If we conform our thinking to God's word, if not, then we're going to just produce a lot of self-induced misery. We're going to get caught up in a lot of anxiety and worry and various uh, sins of the tongue and various uh, overt sins and self-destruct simply because we are not submitting to the authority of God's word. When we do, we will prove that it's good. We will demonstrate it. That his word is good, acceptable, and perfect. It may run counter to everything that we think we ought to do, but God's word always works. So, having looked at those things, we need to be reminded that, as uh, I've indicated just now, the solution in the spiritual life to the problems of life is always going to the cross and looking at the word of God. How did Jesus handle hostility? Because that's exactly what we see in Psalm 56. That's what we saw in Psalm 34. That's what we're studying in in, uh, Thursday night. Some of you all must be getting ready to to face some real hostility because we're really focusing on it all the way around here, some real opposition uh, to your Christianity, and this is how you train for it. So we have seen that the solution is through the Word of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. How's that for a little uh, three-in-one there? Okay, so David is facing a similar situation. It's similar. To, it's the same situation he faced in Psalm 34 when he is praising God for having delivered him from fear in the Philistines. It's the same situation, and it's so similar to to the situation of those early believers that Peter is writing to that he quotes from Psalm 34 to deal with uh, to show them how they need to respond to the hostile environment that they're in. And it also parallels our own situation as we may experience more and more opposition to Christianity even in our own even in our own culture. So when we look at this psalm, two verses stand out because they are virtually repeats of each other, sort of a refrain within the psalm. In Psalm fifty six four we read, In God I will praise his word. We see the same thing in Psalm 56.10. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. 
Why do we praise his word? His word tells us uh, it's, it's revelatory. It has illuminated us to truth. It has given us information. And because we have information, we can trust God. Christianity is not a leap of faith religion. It's not mysticism. It's not just saying, oh, I'm going to believe in spite of evidence. God has given us evidence after evidence after evidence all through Scripture of his existence and of his reality. Uh, so we're not trusting in a vacuum. We're not taking a leap of faith. That is an existential term that came out of Kierkegaard. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Every now and then I'll hear somebody use that term. Well, you just have to take a leap of faith. I just cringe inside. You haven't been taught very well, have you? Leap of faith is a non-Christian concept. When we're stepping out in faith, it's because we have content, we have promises, we have specific instances in Scripture demonstrating the, the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his word. So this is what David says, and that, what's the result of that? We put our trust in God, we put our confidence, our reliance in him, and therefore we will not fear. What's the cure to fear? That's what I started off talking about. What is the solution to fear? How do we face and surmount our fears? We trust in God. The result, I will not fear. Fear just stands for a whole complex of emotional sins. Fear, worry, anxiety, all of these things are connected together. Uh, being overstressed and melting down, that's all the result of not trusting in God. And the question that he asked, the rhetorical question he asked at the end of verse 4 is, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? As Paul says over in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? God plus one is a majority. It doesn't matter what anybody else says as long as we're taking our stand on the word of God. So a couple of things that we ought to see as we look at this psalm in terms of broad outline, the first seven verses, what we see as a focus is that only... An all-powerful God can destroy our enemies. We're not even sure who all the enemies are or what's behind them. Only an omnipotent God can solve the problem of all our enemies. That's why we use that phrase, sufficient. The God is, God's word is sufficient for us. God's power is sufficient for us. God's grace is sufficient for us. Only an all-powerful God can destroy our enemies. To him, we must appeal for protection and deliverance. We must rely upon him depend upon him. And this is what we see exhibited for us with David. How do we walk in dependence upon God? Again and again, we'll see that. And the second division is in verses 8 through 13. And there we see God's care for the believer uh, brings forth God's confidence in God. It strengthens as he meditates upon how God God cares for him. Verse 8, we'll, we'll come to understand this. You number my wanderings. I'm I'm lost. I'm just wandering through life. I heard some line on TV last night in a show I was watching, and the line said, well, when it comes to life, I'm just not crushing it. Most people aren't. But the only way the Bible says that we can crush it is by dependence upon God, because he's the one who's in control. So as David learns that God numbers our wanderings, we may think that we're just, just absolutely out of control, but God is numbering our wanderings. He's paying attention to every detail. And he, and he says, you put my tears in your bottle. 
And that's a really important idiom we'll have to come to understand, but it has to do with the fact that God pays attention to each and every heartache and difficulty that we face. He's not ignoring anything. He is totally aware of every situation, no matter how small and insignificant you might think it is, God understands and he's involved. So these are the two big divisions, and David is going to express his his, uh, confidence in God, and then he vows at the end to uh, praise God, to acknowledge God's uh, favor and grace uh, to the world. So it begins in verse, uh, in what's not a verse, verse zero as it comes across from my computer program because it's not a numbered verse in the English. And it starts off to the chief musician set to a tune called the Silent Dove in Distant Land. So you'll find this in a number of the Psalms that it's set to some tune and that tune was known to them. It's not known to us. And then it's called a miktam, and a miktam is a form of a psalm. So there were different forms of psalms, different structures to psalms, and just as we have different structures to poetry, we have uh, we have sonnets, we have ballads, we have other kinds of of poetry. We even have limericks to bring it down to one of the lower common levels. You may might say the koine. Um, so this is a particular kind of uh, psalm, a certain literary structure, a miktam of David, indicating David is the one who authored it. And uh, there's about 12 that have these historical uh, notes there that it's when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So that, as I said, takes it right back to uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. Now, when we get into the beginning of this, we see that... Uh, that David is crying to God. He's crying out to God, and uh, he expresses this in a prayer. He cries to God for his help, and he explains why God should help him. Now, pay attention to that when you pray, that we should pray in such a manner. These are patterns for prayer. And one way is to cry out to God for his mercy because we don't deserve anything. It is, if, we, if it's heartfelt, is an expression of our humility. We recognize that we must submit our will to God's will and that it is undeserved kindness. We have no claim on God's grace. We have no right to God's goodness. We are rebellious sinners. Scripture says that that God demonstrated his love toward us, and that's a free demonstration. That's out of his goodness and kindness of his heart because it goes on to say, because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we liked God. He died for us when we hated God, when we were in rebellion against God, when mankind was obnoxious to God. God loved us in such a way that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever uh, should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the key. It is a free gift. And so when we plead with God on the basis of his grace, and mercy is the application of his grace, then that is an expression of our uh, humility to God. So in these first two verses, David begins with a cry for divine help, explains why he needs it, uh, and and makes a case for why God should intervene. 
And see, this is a problem, I think, with a lot of people's prayer lives is they don't know how to pray. They don't know enough scripture to structure their prayers in a way that they can biblically present a case to God for why he should intervene in their lives and do what they're asking God to do. Uh, David's in a situation where his enemies were constantly attacking him. And as the Lord's anointed, because God had had Samuel anoint him to be king back in 1 Samuel 16, promised him that he would be king, David could go to God in prayer and say, Lord, you anointed me to be king. If these Philistines keep me in jail and they kill me, I'll never be king. You made a promise. I'm going to hold you to that promise, and I'm going to trust you to be true to your word. Please rescue me, deliver me. And so he's building a biblically sound case for God. So he starts off with this cry to God to be merciful to me, O God, uh, for man would swallow me up. Not the best translation. We'll see a better translation in just a minute. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. That's how he's describing his enemies. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. So the case that he is making to God to intervene graciously in his life is because his enemies are out to destroy him. And the picture here, because of the uh, structure of the verbs, the participles, the action here, is that this is continuous action. This is something that's going on day in and day out. He is constantly under attack uh, from these enemies. As I pointed out in the past, this is presented in in Hebrew poetry, which parallels ideas. There are different kinds of parallelism. This is what we studied recently as synthetic parallelism, where the first line is then developed or expanded by the second line, in contrast to synonymous parallelism, where the second line restates in different words the same idea as the first line. So this is synthetic parallelism. Most of the verses in this psalm are synthetic parallelism. Uh, This has always been one of my favorite psalms, one I have uh, gone to many times in extremely difficult situations. Uh, I had to write an exegetical paper. My very first exegetical paper in Hebrew was written on this psalm. That was our assignment. When you go through the curriculum at Dallas Seminary for uh, Hebrew, you learn the basics of the language the first year. The second year, you learn some rud- second semester, first semester, you learn rudimentary exegetical procedures and grammar, and so that you can break down, understand uh, the gram- grammar, the syntax, the structure of the, uh, the sentences. And then your first exegetical course, where you're stud- taught to really analyze the text, is in the Psalms, because if you can learn to exegete poetry, everything else is going to be a lot easier. Understanding how to exegete poetry is the most is the most uh, difficult. So this was my not only my first exegetical paper. We had to write two that semester, but later that summer I was uh, invited to uh, preach at a church up in Lufkin, and that was going that was my first actual sermon in a pulpit. And so I took this psalm as my text. So that was my. My first sermon was from this text, and and I've always uh, very much enjoyed what I learned studying this particular psalm. So he cries out to God, be merciful to me. This is a Hebrew word that means to show favor, to show grace, to show mercy, 
Mercy, grace, it means undeserved kindness. And mercy is really grace in action towards people. They don't deserve it at all. But you're crying to God to deal with you not on the basis of what you may deserve, but to be good to you and kind to you, even though you may not deserve it. It is an appeal for divine favor and for God to intervene graciously in your life. It's interesting, a lot of these psalms begin this way. For example, Psalm 51.1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now, that's good. That, that's building a case. Because we've studied this before, that the Hebrew word for loving kindness is a word chesed, which means uh, loyalty to an oath or loyalty to a covenant. It's the kind of love that you characterize a marriage, loyalty to that marriage covenant. And so David is saying, look, you've made a covenant with me. If this is a psalm that occurs uh, after the Davidic covenant, if not, you've made a covenant with the nation. And so that's the idea. According to the fact that you have pledged in this covenant to bless us, uh, you should have mercy to me according to the standard of your loving kindness, your faithful, loyal love, and according to the multitude of your uh, tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. So that's a prayer uh, that is indeed, Psalm 51 is after the Davidic covenant. So it is, it's after a sin with Bathsheba, and so it's a prayer of confession. Psalm 57.1, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, repeats it, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. See, so many of these are all about trusting God, what we call the faith rest drill. Until these calamities have passed by. Just some others, Psalm 4.1, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Psalm 6, 2, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. Psalm 19, uh, excuse me, Psalm 9, 13, have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Psalm 25, 16, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. Psalm 26, 11, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity, redeem me and be merciful to me. Psalm 30, verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, Lord, my helper. Again and again, these are just a few examples. David starts by crying out for God's mercy. And then he explains why, the basis. Whenever you have this word in English for, uh, often in the Greek or in the Hebrew, it's translating a, a preposition that indicates an explanation for what was just said. So he's going to explain why God should be merciful to him. And he says, because, we could translate it that way, because man would, and it's not swallow me up, this is the Hebrew word sha'af, which means to crush or to trample, uh, to crush or to trample. And that's what his enemies want to do. They want to crush him. They want to put him in a wine press and squeeze the life out of him. That is the idea. They want to destroy him and force him into subjugation or slavery or death. And he says, man, this, and he just uses a term here for, for, for human beings. He says, for man would swallow me up. And then he describes what they are doing. He says, fighting all day, he oppresses me. Fighting all day. Uh, he oppresses me. And 
he uses the word for fighting here is a Hebrew word, lacham, which means to fight, physically fight. They are physically attacking him. Uh, this is a participle indicating this is continuously act, uh, continuous action. They are continuously fighting. So the combination of the participle plus all day indicates this is just going on and on. Sometimes you've been in situations where you feel uh, just pressured by circumstances, whatever it may be. It may be health, it may be financial, it may have to do with people, it may have to do with some situation at work, but it just goes on and on, and you just feel like the weight on your shoulders gets heavier and heavier. Well, what Scripture is saying is the solution to that is to cry out to God's mercy and trust in Him and let him carry the load. First Peter 5, 7, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. So you have this word fighting all day, and then it says he oppresses me. And the Hebrew word here is a word lachatz, which means uh, not simply to oppress, but he pressures me. He puts pressure on me. He, he squeezes me. He uh, attempts to uh, just, just, totally squeeze everything out of me. That's the idea. And what's interesting is that when we get to the second verse, these last two verbs that we see in the Hebrew show up again because he's connecting the two thoughts together, but he flips them. They show up in a different order. So we've got this word uh, dealing with fighting and dealing with being squeezed or pressed. Uh, my enemies, he says, would hound me. There's our word. That's that word for pressed. It's a different word, so it shouldn't be translated that way. It has that idea of being squeezed or pressed. My enemies are putting pressure on me all day long, for there are many who fight against me. So that tells us something. It's physical. It's fighting. They're putting pressure on him. His life is in danger. He has been captured by his enemies, and he is on the verge of of being destroyed. Now, they're called his enemies. And these enemies, they're not only enemies of David, but as we've seen in our study in 1 Samuel, they're enemies of God because they have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Uh, they are commonly, as David referred to, um, referred to Goliath as the uncircumcised Philistine because he wasn't uh, related to God through the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision being the sign of the covenant. They were hostile to God. The New Testament tells us something about being enemies. It says that um, James calls his Christian audience. So this can happen to Christians as well as non-Christians. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. That is, they are unfaithful to God. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? When we are going along with the world's way of thinking, then it's not God's way. Then we make ourselves to be enemies of God. And uh, so the James goes on to say, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the question is, how frequently do we become enemies of God in terms of our own thinking? Well, David recognizes his enemies, and he recognizes that they seek to destroy him, and there's only one solution, and that is what he gives in the next two verses. He says, whenever I am afraid... I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. 
I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Now notice that that rhetorical question there, what can flesh do to me, is similar to what he uh, said earlier that man uh, would swallow him up and um, would seek to destroy him. So he's focusing there on these human enemies. Uh, What can they do to me? Now, if you look at this, you ought to see two other words that show up in the English, and those are the word trust in verse 3 and trust in verse 4. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you, and God, I will praise his word. How do we trust God? It's by knowing his word, relying upon him. Because he's true to his word, we can praise him. In God, he says, I have put my trust I will not fear. So we have afraid in verse 3, fear in verse 4, trust in verse 3, trust repeated in verse 4. Trust is the solution, the antidote to fear. It's not that fear goes away. It's that when we focus on God and claim his promises, we are able to live above the level of fear. Fear does not become the controlling feature in our decision-making or in our thinking, we're elevated above the uh, above the circumstances, and so that is how we handle fear. It changes our focus, it changes our mental attitude, and rather than uh, seeking some other human uh, based solution, we transform our thinking. Circumstances don't change, the crisis doesn't change. It's our thinking that changes. And our thinking changes because of the Word of God. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. Notice he says, I will trust in you. In English, we have that preposition in, and it can mean a number of different things. Uh, he used, we, in the English, we have the same uh, English preposition at the beginning of verse 4, in, but there are two different words in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the first one, I will trust in you in verse 3, is the Hebrew word El. And this is a word that means unto, into, beside, against, or in reference to. And this preposition primarily expresses motion towards something or towards someone. And so the idea here is that whenever we're afraid, we have to start moving toward God. We're directing our thinking, transferring it from the problem to the solution, problem uh, transferring it from the circumstances uh, from the circumstance to God. When we do that, then we can get that second uh, preposition that is in the lower right hand corner. It's, in English, it's just one letter. It's b, and it means in or within. And uh, what it's showing, it is in God. It is in his attributes. It is in who he is. Now, how do we know God's attributes? Because he's revealed himself in his word. That's what comes up in this, this verse. Because we know him, we know his word, we can trust him. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. What's the result? Conclusion. I will not fear. That's the problem. Whenever... I am afraid. Hebrew there means on any day, on any given day, whenever this happens, uh, I am afraid. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? What can anything in God's created order do to me if I am protected by the God who is the creator of all things? If God is for me, 
who can be against me? Now, in the next two verses, we're going to see some more about what their problems are, how they were attacking David through various uh, slanders and attacks, through uh, verbal attacks. And uh, this is what he describes in verses uh, 5 and 6. And then uh, we'll see the conclusion of this and come back and hopefully finish the psalm next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to be reminded that we need not succumb to fears, the anxieties, the worries, the cares of this life, that we are to trust in you, that we are to realize you are in control, and whether things are positive or negative, things, uh, the circumstances around us are threatening or benign, we can, we can trust in you. You are greater than any problem we face. And that even if uh, we lose our life, we know that we only gain eternal life and that you are the God who controls those circumstances. We can trust in you and therefore have joy and peace and stability no matter what the circumstances. And we pray that we might be reminded of this, memorize some of these verses so that that we can claim these promises as we face our fears. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.